If you have any experience sharing the gospel or even uh, discipling new believers, you will encounter in a short time uh, the person who is going to ask you the inevitable question. What about the one who's never heard of Christ? What about the person who somewhere in the world or somewhere in time or whatever, what about the person who has never had the chance to hear the gospel? Or sometimes is asked another way, will God punish people if they really try hard, if they're really nice and sincere and authentic If they really are a decent person, would God actually recognize their efforts or would God still punish them even even if they haven't had a chance to hear the full message of the gospel of Christ and respond, would God still hold them accountable? And how how could God be considered really merciful and just or how could God be considered at least merciful and loving? if he wouldn't at least recognize those kind of good and sincere efforts? You'll hear that question, as I said, and not very long. If you spend any time sharing the gospel or any time discipling young believers, you will encounter that. Those types of questions are often asked with people trying to figure out the rationale behind God's uh, plan of redemption, the rationale even behind God's plan of electing grace. And while he never unfolds for us all the intricacies of his mind and motives behind the workings of his sovereign grace, this morning we come to a passage that gives us extremely penetrating and weighty explanation of his wrath and how God, if you will, validates, how God justifies His wrath. This is the opening still chapter of this wonderful letter where Paul's telling the Romans that he wants to come and visit them, he wants to partner with them, he wants to be involved with them in spreading the gospel as far and as wide as he can. Gospel, which he says in verses 16 and 17, He's proud to be able to share. He has no shame in sharing it. He's honored and overjoyed to be able to preach it because it's the means by which God powerfully saves people. It's the, it's the apparatus by which He makes known the righteousness of God, how you can be righteous with God. And Paul will go on to really unfold and unpack that in tremendous detail But before he does that, there's something of a parenthesis, something of an uh, interruption, or maybe we might even say a digression. As you'll see over in chapter 3, verse 21, he will pick that theme up again when he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And as he says in the next verse, the righteousness of God through faith. So he will return, he will touch this issue again, the righteousness of God by faith. But before he deals with that, he digresses, if you will, in these next two chapters to really explain or lay the background, if you will, on why God will save only those 
who have faith. He's going to explain to us, he's going to convince us, he's going to give us a, 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 the, the, the clarity to understand why, if anyone is saved, it must be on faith. Why, why there's no other name given uh, among men, as the gospel writers say, or as the book of Acts say, by which we must be saved except Jesus Christ. He's going to explain all of this to us in these next couple of chapters, making it clear why God, although He saves both Jews and Gentiles, although this gospel is preached to all mankind, He's making it clear why God will save only those who are saved by faith in the gospel. And the reason, of course, for all of this, He states here in verse 18 of chapter 1, And that's the fact that all the rest of the world is under the wrath of God. And rightfully so. And he unfolds here in these few verses and in these next couple of chapters, this concept, this explanation of sin and of God's wrath against sin, the most clear explanation of sin that you will find anywhere in Scripture. And he lays it out in in very detailed exposition. Why it's absolutely necessary to believe the gospel. Because to not believe, you're absolutely under the wrath of God. Listen as he writes just these first few verses. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul explains to us the wrath of God in a number of different principles. He begins, first of all, by just talking about its revelation, the revealing of of the wrath of God. He says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is revealed. It's a present tense verb indicating that this is an ongoing process. We mentioned last week that this isn't talking about just something being made cognitively known. This isn't just the delivery of information, in other words. This is an outworking that he's talking about. This is, a, this is a process that's going on all around us all the time. God is working out His wrath against man, against the world, against sin. And we all know, of course, that wrath, there's going to be this element of wrath in the final judgment. At the end, at the very end, there will be certainly a display of wrath against all mankind 
There will be a final judgment, but what Paul's telling us here is that this wrath is already visible in the world around you. It's already evident. It's evident in the moral degradation of the world. It's evident by just looking at the spiraling collapse of the world. Paul will go on to expound this in the remainder of this chapter, but we just take note of the basic thesis here is that, that, that Paul tells us that if you had any doubt, if you have any doubt about the existence of God, look around you. Look at the chaos of the world. Look at the decline of the world. If you have any doubt, if you need any proof about the existence of God, pay attention to the wrath of God. Pay attention to the fact that despite all of man's education and all of man's technology and all of man's advancement and civilization and all that, the world is not getting better. That despite all of those things that are going on and man yearning to improve and grow and all of those things, one of the most validating principles uh, in the world about the existence of God is the ongoing or continued presence of sin and even the increase of it. And this, Paul says, is the wrath of God. As he goes on to say in verse 24, this wrath is God giving up people to the desires of their heart, to the lust of their heart, to impurity, and to the further destruction of their own selves because of that. The wrath of God is being revealed. People don't like to think about God as a wrathful God. They like to think about God as a loving God. And so they they tend to shy away from any kind of discussion of God being wrathful, God being in any way judgmental in that sense. It's incongruent in their minds with with, uh, sort of advances in civilization, the enlightened mindset of modern times. It's a relic, they would want us to believe, a relic of a, a pattern of hostility and warfare from from primitive ages, as if we didn't have hostility and warfare all around us, right? But they would want us to think that somehow this is some sort of remnant of uh, some sort of archaic construct from from, uh, civilization gone by, an uncivilized society. And so, so many people are embarrassed by the idea of God's wrath as it's presented in the Bible. And think it's not compatible with their idea of God as a God of mercy and a God of love. They don't see how you can bring together this idea of God's wrath and God's love. But they don't understand that that wrath, the alternative to wrath, I should say, the alternative to wrath is not love. The alternative to wrath is not love. The alternative to wrath is neutrality. The alternative is indifference. 
The alternative is for God to look at sin and not to care. The alternative is for God to be indifferent to it, to be neutral on the issue of sin, to be neutral on the issue of morality, to be neutral on the issue of evil. And God most certainly is not neutral when it comes to the issue of sin. The alternative to wrath is not love. It's indifference. Love formally is an act of the will. It is displayed in deeds of service as we find over and over and over again in Scripture. It's displayed, for example, in Christ laying down His life for you. Greater love, we're told, has no man than this, that He would lay down His life for His friends. Love formally is an act of the will expressed in deeds of service and its alternative is not wrath, it's hatred. It's acts of ill will performed against someone because of that. But wrath, wrath is a statement of the character of God against the nature of sin. Sin, it's abhorred by God. Sin is an abomination to God. Sin is is something which has absolutely no attraction, no value, no validity in any sense in God's eyes. It has no place in God's eyes. So the only possible response that God could ever have to it is revulsion. It is abhorrence. While men and women might be tempted to be indifferent, it's impossible for God to do so. See, sin is a violation of God's character expressed in His law. And God's character is the expression of everything that is good and right and desirable. God's character is the expression of everything that is good and right and desirable. And so for God to be neutral about sin is for God to be neutral about what is good and right and desirable. And for God to be neutral about what is good and right and desirable is for God to be neutral we might say, even about his own existence. For God, in other words, to be content with something that isn't like himself is for God to entertain the possibility of some state of being that is higher or at least equal to himself and for God to conceive of anything that is at least equal or higher than himself is for God to no longer be God. And so you understand God craves after the beauty of his own perfection because it is perfection. And for him to do anything otherwise would not be perfect. This is who God is. God can't be neutral about what is right. God can't be neutral about what is good. And he can't be neutral about what is desirable. You could imagine yourself if you had some some state or condition, if you had some treasure, if you had some uh, pot of gold, if you will, some, some jackpot of wealth, and you were enjoying the benefits of all that, 
for you to not at least want other people to enjoy that benefit would immediately be recognized as ignoble, wouldn't it? For you to have the benefits and all the privileges of something like that and yet want that to be kept only to yourself would immediately be recognized as immoral. At the same time, for God in all of His beauty and all of His perfection to somehow not desire that for His creation would no longer be perfect. So this is the expression of God's wrath. It is simply the quality of His character as opposed to the, to the state of sin or to the imperfection and the corruption of sin. And so God, in order to be God, He cannot be indifferent. He must value and cherish what is right and what is good and what is desirable. And everything about God is right and good and desirable. And everything about sin is not. Everything about corruption and evil is not. And so ever since the fall of this world into sin, God's response has been consistent. It has been abhorrence. It has been disgust. At all this corruption going on around us, it is a response of wrath. And what we're told here in Scripture is that this wrath is already unfolding. It's unfolding over time as God gives men and women over to the corruption that they themselves are pursuing. This is is the demonstration of God's wrath. It's being demonstrated. It's being displayed. If you just turn on the, the news channel or if you read in the paper, you are reading about the wrath of God. Our nation is being given over to its own desires and its own corruptions. And as they plunge themselves deeper and deeper into them, this is the wrath of God unfolding before our eyes. This is God's wrath as it's defined on the pages of Scripture. See, wrath isn't something that just comes at the end. Wrath isn't something that you you try to cheat as you pass through time. Wrath isn't something that you try to escape once it's all said and done, as if somehow you just sort of of float through life doing what you want to do, and then some way, somewhere down the road, you're going to make a turn, make a decision, or make some sort of stand and you're going to escape the wrath of God in the end. That's not the way it works. The scripture says that God unfolds his wrath in your life right now. It is happening if you do not know Christ. He gives you over to the corruption of your sinful desires and what you see is your own life beginning to unravel as you Face further and further corruption by the darkness and degeneracy of your own heart. This is the wrath of God. And this is His hand actively in your life, whether you recognize it or not. You say, well, why would God do that? 
Why would God do that to someone? Why would he allow them to just go on and destroy themselves? Why doesn't he save them? Why doesn't he help them? Well, Paul tells us right here, and he unfolds for us really the second element of this whole deal, which is the reasons. This is why God does this. And it is stated really in one fundamental reason, right really at the end of verse 18, that men and women, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. This is, this is a word for holding something down. Literally, that's what it means. It's holding something down. And so in unrighteousness, they are keeping the truth down. Or they are, they are keeping the truth from being known. Or at least they're trying to. They're trying to hold down the truth of God. They're demonstrating that they don't agree with it. They're demonstrating that they don't like it. What they learn about God, they do not like, and so they reject it, and so they try to hold it down and keep it from being known or keep it from being accepted or keep it from being whatever. They suppress it. They deny it or deny at least its truthfulness. And so Paul says, verse 19 They do this because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. What can be known about God? In other words, we're not talking about comprehensive knowledge. We're not saying, we're not saying a you know, a, a, an academic theological degree here. Paul's not saying that, that people have exposure to all kinds of knowledge, but what he's saying is that they all have exposure to some knowledge. That this is, this is a limited amount of knowledge that can be known. And yet that limited amount of knowledge, it has been shown to all mankind... In fact, Paul says it's plain to them. There's a certain amount of knowledge about God that is plain to every single person on the face of the earth. Everyone. Everyone. You might ask, well, well, what is it? And what kind of knowledge are we talking about here? What is Paul claiming that God exactly has revealed, or more likely, you know, what exactly is Paul saying that everyone is denying? What exactly have, have they comprehended, and what exactly are they suppressing? Well, he says it. He says it right here. It is His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power, and divine nature. That's what he says has been clearly perceived. So at the very core, God's power, God's nature, or we might say it, God's sovereignty and God's existence. God's sovereignty and God's existence. In other words, there is this 
there is this clear and plain message that this is not some demagogue, or this is not some minor deity among a pantheon of other gods. This is a supreme creator. I was amazed as I watched in the last couple of months unfold this article that was published in the Wall Street Journal of all places on Christmas Day. Christmas Day of last year, December 25th, 2014. Uh, This article entitled, Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. And here it is, it's buried in the newspaper on a day when virtually no one reads the newspaper on Christmas Day. And yet it goes on to receive 8,000 comments, which is a lot for an article in a newspaper, especially a, a religious article in a secular newspaper. And approaching half a billion links on Facebook. It struck a chord. And the whole premise of this article that science increasingly makes the case for God. The whole premise is this. Is the more and more we know through science about the world the more and more likely there is for the existence of a God. In other words, the increase of science doesn't make God less likely. It makes him more likely. Or the thesis of the article is actually this. The more we know about the universe and worlds and the way that things work with with, uh, matter and with oxygen and with all those things, the more we know about the world around us, the more implausible is the whole concept of life, which makes the perfect balance of the earth striking and makes intelligent design the only reasonable explanation. That's the, that's the article in, in the Wall Street Journal, of all things. But this is, this is the reality. That, that people, when they look at the world around them, when they look at creation around them, when they just see the evidences before them, they are inevitably driven to this conclusion. They're inevitably driven to the existence of God and His sovereignty. And this is Paul's premise. This is the basic premise that he's laying out here is that, that the, the, the world, the creation, the universe, everything around us is all compelling people to this conclusion. It is plain. It is evident. And it's not just His sovereignty and it's not just His existence. Paul, Paul speaks about those two things here. You could go to the Old Testament and it speaks about God revealing other attributes, His goodness, His righteousness, and especially His wisdom. In creation, in other words, there's there's much to be seen there in creation, but at its very very basic core, Paul says there's at least this: the supremacy of God, the sovereignty that is, and the existence of God. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 19 because this is sort of the classic Old Testament exposition of this concept. Psalm 19, where the psalmist opens up in verse 1 and says, The heavens declare the glory 
of God. The, the heavens, the skies, the, 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 the stars, they make a statement. They make a declaration. And the declaration is God's glory. He says there in verse 2, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, this is continuous. He's not talking about just some spectacular display of supernova. He's not talking about some shooting star. He's saying that this is just continuous. Every day, every night, when you look around you, when you look into the, 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 the natural creation, there is one continuous uh, announcement, one continuous declaration of God, of His existence, of His sovereignty, of His glory. It's continuous, and yet, and Paul says, in spite of that, verse 3, it's inaudible. He clarifies this, there's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. So while, while on one hand this is continually going on, and while on one hand it's being declared, Paul says at the, I mean, excuse me, uh, David says at the same time, there's no words, there's no speech, there's, there's no voice, there are no actually clear statements, if you will. In other words, this natural revelation, this thing's, these things that we know from creation, he says there, there are limits, if you will, to how much you can understand. Limits to how much you can, you can perceive from this. It's clear, but it's limited. It's clear, but it's inaudible. It's unmistakable, and yet it's inarticulate. And so while this natural revelation is all around us, we can say at the same time it is insufficient because it's inaudible. We don't know everything we need to know from it. We don't know everything we need to know about God. Or another way to say this is this natural revelation, while while the message is coming, it is still subject to interpretation. It's subject to interpretation. And without specific words and without specific statements, those interpretations, often they're wrong. So there is an insufficiency to the revelation of God of of Himself in nature because it's inaudible. It may inspire people. It may strike them with awe, with a sense of wonder, but with no words Man will never know why. All throughout the world, people will gaze at landscapes. They'll take in panoramas of canyons and mountains. They'll stare at the stars. They'll wonder about the sun. They'll do this all the time and they will be struck with awe and they will rush out to paint landscapes, to write songs, to rise early and travel far to see all of these wonders and to take them all in. And they will be inspired and they will be struck by all of this. And yet at the end of the day, it, it, at the end of the day, really what happens is it raises more questions than it answers. 
In other words, they see the wonders and the beauty of creation, but they also, at the same time, they see the frightening destruction of hurricanes and typhoons, earthquakes, and tidal waves. They're struck by it, but they can't, they can't put it all together. Even in the behavioral sciences, just take it out of the physical sciences and go to the behavioral sciences. People observe and watch the ways of life. They watch the, uh, the machinations of society. They can make certain observations and even predictions, and yet they don't know why. Howard Eirich writes this. He says, sociology and psychology may observe and catalog human behaviors, but they cannot tell us the workings or the conditions of the human heart from which such responses flow. When they try to explain the why of human behavior, their guess is no better than the untrained or the unlearned because they are, in the final analysis, simply making observations based on general revelation. At times, they're very complex, at times creative. It is to say, however, that they are limited because they lack the knowledge of what is behind creation and the meaning of life within it. So it doesn't matter if it's science. It doesn't matter if it's physical science or behavioral science. It doesn't matter. People go out there and they observe and they watch and they they see even the beauty and the majesty. They're inspired by all of these things. And whether it's writing a poem uh, about the, the majesty of rising peaks or whether it's writing a sonnet about the love of a man and a woman. And they see all these wonderful things. They experience all these wonderful things. And yet when they go to try to interpret them, there's limitation. There's limitation. You know, over in the book of Ecclesiastes, this same thought is expressed. The whole third chapter of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing about all these experiences and all these uh, task and all of these, uh, you know, pursuits of life, all of these things that we go through in our chores and our work and our leisure and all that stuff. There's a time for this and there's a time for that. There's a time for this and a season for that. And he says, in the, in the midst of all of this, God has built in us a concept of perfection and beauty. He actually says in verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time and he's put eternity in the heart of man. In other words, God has, as we go through this and we go through the casting of stones and the gathering of stones and we go through the the burying of people and and the welcoming of life and we go through all of these things, they all... We all experience them, and yet in light of all this, in light of the fallen world that we are in, we're never satisfied. 
through all of the experiences, through all of the chores, through all the pursuits, we're never satisfied because there's something within inside of us where God has instilled within us concepts of beauty and eternity which are not satisfied. We learn, uh, excuse me, we yearn for more answers, we yearn for more order, we yearn for more beauty, we yearn for eternity. And it's all built there inside of us because we see what's around us and we we, we, we just innately sense that there's something more. And we understand innately that there's eternity. We understand innately that there's deity. We understand innately that there's sovereignty. Everyone does. David says here in Psalm 19 that God's revelation of himself is universal. Their voice Goes out, he says in verse 4, through all the earth, their words to the end of the world, everywhere, he says. All of creation. It might be inaudible, it might not, might not have words, but it's everywhere. He even uses the sun as an example. In them, he says, he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving its chamber like a strong man. It runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit to the other end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. Just just one little example, he says, the sun touches everything. It's visible everywhere. And at some point in the course of life, in the course of each month or each year or each day, It shines on every part of the earth. God's creation and its testimony is universal. And man sees it. He yearns. He yearns to be in touch with something of its beauty. Something of its perfection. You know, but David's intent in writing all this in Psalm 19 isn't just to celebrate all this beauty. And it's not just to sort of poetically put into words the inspirations that come from creation. Now, what he's doing is he's setting a contrast here. He's setting up a contrast between this comprehensive framework, if you will, the totality of the voice of nature, how it speaks to everything. It's extensive, it's universal, even if it is insufficient. David's establishing that as a sort of an analogy and a parallel between not the natural or the general revelation, but on the other hand, special revelation, which he says is also universal. It's also glorious in the sense that it also speaks to every person in every place, in every situation. And he goes on in verse 7 of that chapter, uh, transitioning from general revelation to special revelation, when he goes to say the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's clean, he says, of the fear of the Lord, verse 9. Enduring forever its rules. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So here it says you've got general revelation. And it's everywhere, but it's inaudible. But on the other hand, you have special revelation. Which has its own universality. It's universal in the sense that it's always pure. It's always right. It's always clean. It's always perfect. 
And it speaks universally to all mankind. Back over in Romans chapter 1, Paul's point then is very similar to David's. There's a limited amount of knowledge that's available universally to all mankind. They all know. What is known about God is plain to them. Or one version paraphrases this. They knew all the time that there was a God. You say, well, why, why then? Why then don't they acknowledge it? Well, Paul says, because they suppress it. Because they suppress it. God revealed enough knowledge where they should have responded and they didn't. Clearly showing that the problem is not knowledge. Or one way to say this, God showed them enough knowledge to condemn even if it wasn't enough to save. Special revelation is necessary because man sees the general revelation around him and he doesn't properly interpret it and because he confuses it and because he just uh, uh, completely botches it all. Special revelation is necessary and this is what Paul rejoiced to be able to preach. He rejoiced to be able to preach the revelation of God's righteousness. The unfolding of God's righteousness. It was his privilege to go out there and give that. But he indicates that even before that, God had made himself known. And what people did with that knowledge was revolt against it. You say, well, maybe if God given them more knowledge. No, the problem wasn't knowledge. They didn't like the knowledge that they received, and they wouldn't have liked the rest of the knowledge they received. They would have suppressed it all. That's the point. The point is not how much knowledge they have. The point is what they did with the knowledge that they do have. Paul says God had revealed enough. And it wasn't just to the scholars, and it wasn't just to the scientists, and it wasn't just to the people with the microscopes and the telescopes. Everyone. God revealed enough knowledge to everyone. Enough knowledge to demonstrate that their problem is not a lack of knowledge. Their problem was a rebellious heart. Enough knowledge to demonstrate that they would not respond to the knowledge that they had. They suppressed the truth. They attempted to deny. They intended to make sense of the world without God. They refused to face the reality of Him. And so the result, he says in verse 20, is that they're without excuse. Anapologia. Anapologia. They have no defense, no excuse. It's a legal term. They will have no legal defense. When the day of judgment comes. You know what this means at a very basic level? A very fundamental level for you. Is that whenever you are out there. Speaking to an unbeliever. Whenever you're interacting at work. 
with unbelievers, whenever you're at school with unbelievers, you know what this means? That all of them are in the precarious position of being a believing unbeliever. The Bible says they know. The Bible says they know. They know somewhere deep down in their hearts that what you are telling them is true. They might have suppressed it and they might have pushed it down, but they have this yearning, they have this eternity that's been put into their hearts. They long for the beauty, they long for the order, they long for the perfection. They have all of this stuff. They've looked and they've heard the inaudible declarations and And they have been spending their lives trying to make sense out of all this stuff, and they're not making sense out of it. And they're seeing the wrath of God unfolding in their life. They're seeing all the evidence, and so they're in this very vulnerable position. They're a believing unbeliever because they know. So it's just up to us to tell, it's just up to us to speak. To give voice to the special revelation that makes sense out of what they know. It makes sense out of all of this stuff that God has put into their heart and their mind. That's why Paul was glad. He was glad to be able to share the gospel. To see the righteousness of God. Made manifest. Well, there's tremendous results that come from the rebellion of mankind. Beginning in verse 21. We'll have to leave that for next time. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a prayer and a song. Father, we are overwhelmed by your kindness to us. When we too... We're confused and blind because we had suppressed the truth of who you were. We had rebelled. We had turned away from you in the darkness of our own heart. You gave us the message of the gospel. Why you did that, we could never know. Apart from your inexplicable mercy. And yet, Lord... In light of that mercy, how quick we should be to tell of your kindness and your goodness, your beauty, your holiness to any and all who would hear. Help us, Lord. Help us to remember again the magnificence of this gospel, to be amazed by it again, and to speak it as we ought. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.